A very good morning, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, and uh, thank you for joining us, uh, especially those who are joining us online uh, today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're looking at Galatians chapter 5, uh, the reading we had just now, uh, from uh, verses 13 to 26, right? 13 to 15 is a bit of overlap from last week, uh, but we're looking from verses 13 to 26. So if you have that ready, it'd be helpful to have that open in front of you. Uh, let me lead us in prayer, uh, and we'll... we'll uh, uh, look at the passage together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word. Uh, we ask that your Spirit would be at work uh, among us now. Uh, we pray that, um, uh, that he will open our hearts and eyes to uh, the freedom that we have in Christ uh, and how to use that freedom rightly. Um, we pray that he would work uh, in each one of our hearts, both those who are here right now uh, those who are, um, are connecting uh, online, uh, that, uh, that uh, your spirit through your word would change us, we pray. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many people, especially politicians, like to talk about freedom. Uh, they might speak as if we all know what we mean by it. But actually, freedom is never an absolute thing, is it? It only exists in contrast to something else. When someone says to you, you are free, you've got to always ask, free from what? Am I free from paying taxes? Am I free from lice? Am I free to marry? Am I free to leave the country? I am free can never be an unqualified statement. If I am free from all the obligations of citizenship in a country, I am not free to receive all the privileges of citizenship in a country. No one is free in every sense of the term. So if someone asks if you are free, you've got to say, free from what? Now, in the very first verse of our passage today, the Apostle Paul says you were called to freedom. But we already know from the context of Galatians that the freedom he's talking about here is freedom from the slavery of the law. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 23, the Jews were held captive under the law. And under the law, they had to do to be righteous. They could not keep it. They could never do enough. And so they fell under the law's curse. But this righteousness by doing is not unique to the law of Moses. In fact, God will judge everyone according to what they've done with great perfect justice. Do good and get rewarded. Do wrong and get punished. That's the basic principle of the world, the ABC of how it all works. And so Paul could say in chapter 4 verse 3 that those who are under the law were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But it wasn't just the Jews that were enslaved to the elementary principles. Same thing for Gentiles as well. In chapter 4, verse 9, he says, they were under idols, they were enslaved to idols, they were enslaved, to, and at that time, they were enslaved to the weak and elementary principles of the world. Whatever systems of belief they were bound to, whatever idols they have, what they had to do was perform. In the end, they were under that system. Do good, get rewarded, do wrong, get punished. It's all about doing, just like the Jews under the law. So whether it was Jew and whether it was Gentile, actually everyone is under sin. Everyone is enslaved. And Christ came to redeem us from the curse of the law. He paid the penalty of sin for us on the cross so that we can escape from being under that law or under the elementary principles. We no longer do to be saved. 
Like Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, we too hear the gospel, we believe in the gospel, we trust in Jesus and God considers us righteous as well. We are justified, declared righteous by faith. And so when Paul says in chapter 5 verse 13, you are called to freedom. It's freedom from being under the law of Moses from the Jews. It's freedom from being under idols for the Gentiles, from being under the elemental principles. It's freedom from having to do in order to be right with God. It's freedom from performance-based religion. It's freedom from the slavery of having to try, 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 try to do what is right, but fail, 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 and end up under God's condemnation. But it is not freedom to sin. You see... Some people might have thought, okay, if we're no longer under the law of Moses, then just do anything. Lah. No rules, no boundaries, just do whatever your nature wants you to do. After all, you're not saved by doing, you're saved by hearing God's promises and trusting in Him. Ah, Paul warns the Galatians in chapter 5 verse 13, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The flesh is our natural self. And right now, our natural self is sinful. Now, not all flesh is necessarily sinful. Jesus Christ came in the flesh and he was sinless. When human beings were first created, we were sinless as well. But since the fall, our natural self, our flesh, is corrupted by sin. The natural person I was born as is a sinful person. And it's like that for all of us. All of us who are in Adam. And so Paul warns us that the flesh might want to use the fact that we are no longer under the law of Moses as an excuse to sin. And he says, don't do that. Instead of using your freedom to serve the flesh, use it, he says in verse 13, through love to serve one another. God wants us to love our neighbor. Actually, in the end, even the law of Moses was an expression of that, wasn't it? The whole law of verse 14 says, uh, it was fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the opposite of that in verse 15 would be to bite and devour one another and ultimately be consumed by one another because that's what the flesh will do. The flesh will lead us to attack each other, to hurt each other, say bad things about each other, in the end destroy each other, and in fact, in the, in the end, destroy the church. And that will actually be natural, that it will come from our sinful nature. But there is something that constrains sin for the Christian, that actually takes us in the opposite direction. And it's not the law. What leads you away from sin is not the law, but the Spirit. Verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Well, when you walk by something, it means that that is what governs your way of life. If you look back at the Old Testament, remember, is. Uh, Israel was sent into exile because they didn't obey God's law. Uh, and God made them a promise through the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, he promised that one day he would bring them back. 
Uh, this is a very similar promise I'm going to show you, uh, similar one to the one that we saw in our Old Testament reading, but it's a different one. Ezekiel 35. Uh, in Ezekiel 35, verse 25, he says, He will wash them clean from their sins. And then in verse 36, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And then in verse 37, he says, I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Right? God will put his spirit into his people to walk in his ways. Right? Somehow or other, those statutes and rules are still there. But it's the spirit who causes them to walk in it. And this is after he has forgiven them, after he has saved them, after he has washed them clean. So they're not obeying in order for him to do that. He has saved them by his grace, and by his grace he's going to give them this spirit. And this spirit is going to enable them to, to keep the law, that is this law of love, not in order to be saved, but because they have been saved and given the spirit. So, does that mean... Christians are led by the Spirit to obey the law of Moses. Well, we're not under the law of Moses, are we? We've seen that over and over again in Galatians. The law of Moses has been fulfilled in Christ, by Christ. He kept it fully from the heart like no one else can. It's fulfilled in Christ and he was everything the law was pointing forward to. The law of Moses is completed. It's fulfilled. It's not operational anymore. And so in that sense, we are not under the law. We've seen that. But in as far as the law of Moses was an expression of God's will, a will that we love. It was applied to the people of Israel at that time, and it's part of Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness, so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so every part of the Bible, including the law, has application for us. We don't apply it directly to us as if we were under the law, Rather, we see how it's fulfilled in Christ first and then how it applies to us now. And it's the Spirit who teaches us to do that. It's the Spirit who gave us the Old Testament that points forward to Christ. It's the Spirit who gave us the New Testament where we see the fulfillment in Christ. And when we see how the New Testament uses the Old, when we see the commands in the New Testament repeated or transformed in the New, well, that's the, show, that's the Spirit showing us how that applies to us in Christ. And the Spirit still speaks to us through these words that he spoke so long ago. Not as the law of Moses, under which we have to keep in order to be saved, but as the living, abiding Word of God, which points us to his Son and teaches us to lovingly obey him. And the Spirit not only speaks to us, he also works in us. Remember what God said through Ezekiel? I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The spirit opens our hearts to his words. It gives us faith to believe them. It gives us hearts that long to obey them. He gives us the power to do that. It is God by his spirit who enables us to walk in his ways. It is God by his spirit who enables us to fulfill the law. It is God by the spirit who enables us to love. So now when we read the Old Testament, we're not reading it like Jews. With the law is external, showing them their sinfulness. For us, the Spirit is internal. He points us to Christ in the gospel. He enables us to see the world and need the scriptures in a Christ-centered way. He motivates us to obey God's word, not in order to be saved, but because we have been. He pours God's love into our hearts by pointing us to the cross, enabling us to see Christ crucified there. We are not slaves reading the law as law that condemns. We are reading it as children who are no longer under the law, but delight 
in the character of their father expressed there and want to imitate him. We are reading as people who are freed from the burden of performance that the law brought to people who are asking, how can I serve and please my God who loved me and saved me? We are reading as people who are not under the law, but as people who are led by the Spirit. Imagine you go back to your old school one day as the guest of honor at the school's prize-giving ceremony. Are you under the school rules anymore? No, you're not. Right? If someone said to you, I'm sorry, you can't come in. Huh? You don't have your school uniform on. You say, no, 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 no. I know I look young, but actually I'm not a student here. Right? I've graduated from the school. I'm not under the school rules anymore. And friends, that's the same thing as us. We're no longer under the law of Moses. We don't need to be circumcised to come in. We're like a grown-up who go visit the old school. We don't have to wear the uniform anymore. On the other hand, let's say you go back to your old school as the guest of honor at the prize-giving day. Will you simply come late, leave your shirt hanging out, swear at the teacher, smoke cigarettes, distribute drugs, talk during assembly? Of course not. Why not? You're not under the school rules that prohibit these things. You're not under the rules, but you still need to behave. In fact, you need to behave even better because of who you are now. You don't need the school rules to tell you how to behave. You do it of your own volition. Not because you're scared the prefects might book you. Because you're all grown up and you're the guest of honor at the school prize-giving ceremony. Your motivation is internal, not the school rules. And it's a little bit like that. We're not under the law. We're under the Spirit. Led by the Spirit to love God and seek to obey Him. To obey God's Word from the heart. Not just as law, but to love God, to love our neighbor. And when we do that, we're actually accidentally fulfilling the law. And so Paul says in verse 16, Walk by the Spirit. Let the Spirit direct how you live. Let your lifestyle be governed by Him. And if you do that, you will no longer gratify the desires of the flesh. Because you see, verse 17, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The Spirit will pull you one way, your natural self, your natural sinful self will pull you the other. And you want to do both, but you can't. If you're walking by the Spirit, you won't be gratifying the desires of the flesh. See, the way to avoid sins, not put yourself back under the law of Moses. We're led by the Spirit. And verse 18 says, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. No. The way to avoid sin is by walking by the Spirit who leads us. Let the Spirit keep leading us to the cross. Let the Spirit keep opening our eyes, making Christ big in our horizons. Let the Spirit keep speaking to us in the Word. Let the Spirit keep assuring us that we are children of our Heavenly Father, that we can call Him Abba Father. Let the Spirit keep motivating us to obey Him. Walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, what does it look like when someone's gratifying the desires of the flesh? What, do, what does the natural self just produce if we're left to ourselves? Well, verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage, before, during, or after. Impurity, moral filth, sexual sin, seen as being dirty. Sensuality, being sexually reckless and promiscuous idolatry, 
the worship of anything other than God, usually statues or images, sorcery, being involved in witchcraft or black magic or maybe even drug abuse, enmity, being hostile or hateful to, to someone, strife, keeping on quarreling and bickering with people, jealousy, fits of anger, losing our tempers with people, rivalries, which come from, from selfish ambition, dissensions, causing divisions among people, divisions, breaking into factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, particularly wild partying, things like that. Paul warns us in verse 21, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If your life and mine are characterized by the works of the flesh, then we are not walking by the Spirit. The Spirit is not working in our lives to bring us to holiness. Then if that's the case, we've got no reason to think we're saved because God gives His Spirit to those whom He washes clean. The Spirit is the one who makes us God's children. It's God's children who inherit the kingdom. On the other hand, the fruit of the Spirit is seen in verse 22 and 23. It's many different fruits. Well, actually, it's not, is it? It's one fruit, many different kinds. Right? You can't say, oh, okay, you know, uh, Gordon's got love, Tim's got joy, uh, Christina's got patience. Uh, no, 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 no. It's, it's one fruit, and it's expressed all different ways. Uh, the fact that it's talking about fruit implies that it grows, right? Rather than just suddenly appears. It also implies it's generated from within, not, not something that comes from outside. You know, apples grow on apple trees, mangoes on mango trees, durians grow on durian trees. And the fruit of the Spirit grows in people in whom the Spirit is working. The first fruit, of course, is love. Love for God, love for Jesus, love for God's people, Love for the world. Joy. The kind of joy that comes from knowing that God loves you, that your eternal future is secure no matter what happens here. Peace. Whether it's an internal peace that comes from trusting God, look after you in whatever situation, or, or peace that characterizes your relationships with your brothers and sisters. Patience with others that springs from awareness of God's own patience with you in Christ. Kindness, again, which responds to the kindness that God has shown us in the death of Christ. Goodness or generosity. Now, again, the Spirit showing us God's goodness and generosity leads us to having that same attitude in our hearts. Faithfulness, being the kind of pe person that people can trust because you serve that kind of God. Gentleness, which includes humility and courtesy like Jesus, and self-control. That's the kind of thing the Spirit produces in people's lives. But you cannot legislate for it. Can you write a law about this? You can't, can you? It's got to come from within. And yet at the same time, if that describes you, then you are keeping the law in the most profound way. Verse 23 says, Against such things there is no law, because you are keeping the Spirit of the law. Because the law is fulfilled in the command to love one another. And these are all aspects of coming out of love, isn't it? 
Now, of course, you won't do it perfectly because you've got your flesh still pulling you the other way. But as the Spirit does His work, step by step, your life will change and the fruit of the Spirit will be seen. We've seen the Spirit and the flesh want very incompatible things. But verse 24 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with His passions and desire. When we said yes to Jesus our Lord, when we said, I turn to Christ, I repent of my sins, I renounce evil. When we said yes to Jesus, we said no to the flesh. We already decided against it. There's no decision to be made. You already decided. We can't say, I belong to Christ, but I don't want him to run my life. Of course not. When we came to Christ, we chose against the flesh. But it doesn't mean it's not there. Lah. We've crucified it. It's as if it's like you know, on the cross trying to persuade us to bring it down. But we said no. And we say, we want to live this new life by the Spirit. And the apostle says, if we live by the Spirit, that is, if the Spirit has given us a new life, then let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let's live His way. And from verse 26 all the way down to, to chapter 6, verse 10, Paul gives us some examples of that. But we're only going to look at the first one in verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Conceited there is having the attitude that we deserve praise and renown. Right? It's thinking too highly of ourselves. And if we do that, then what we do? We provoke one another. We end up challenging one another to get the recognition that we think we deserve. Or we will envy one another. We'll keep on looking at the recognition or position or attention that other people get and we'll be jealous of them because we thought we deserve it. That's, that's fleshly behavior, isn't it? Paul says to the Galatians, the Spirit says to us, don't do that. You've already repudiated the flesh. You've already said no. You've already been given new life by the Spirit. Don't go and behave like in a fleshly kind of way. We are not rivals with each other. We are brothers and sisters meant to be helping each other press on in godliness. And we'll see more about this as we read the first part of chapter 6 next week. But let me summarize and synthesize. We've seen here three things that are true of the Christian. Number one, we live by the Spirit. The Spirit has given us new life in Christ. Two, we are led by the Spirit, so we're not under the law. What changes our lives and behavior is not the threat of punishment of the law, but the transforming work of the Spirit. We were, and number three, we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We've said no to our natural selves. We've said yes to Jesus as Lord. And those three things are true of everyone who trusts in Jesus. And if those three things are true, then we've already seen what we ought to do. We should walk by the Spirit, follow the Spirit's lead, work with Him as He seeks to make us more like Christ. And as we do that, we will not follow the desires of the flesh because they're not consistent with the Spirit's lead. And in particular, we should love one another rather than being conceited, provoking, and envying each other. And if we do follow the Spirit's lead, if we walk in His way, then we will see His fruit in our lives. But if we gratify the desires of the flesh, we will see another set of behaviors that are symptomatic of a heart that is not led by the Spirit and will not inherit the kingdom. So in conclusion, let me ask you a question. It's a question for you to answer for yourself, not for anyone else. You answer to God. 
What predominates your life? The fruit of the Spirit or the works of the flesh? It's a diagnostic question. If you're showing the fruits of the Spirit, if you, that is actually springing from faith in Christ and his gospel, then, then, then be grateful for the Spirit's work in your life. doesn't mean you don't struggle with the flesh. Of course, you still do. Sometimes you will exhibit fleshly behavior. You need to be reminded that you've, been, you've crucified the flesh. You've given new life for the Spirit, so you must keep in step with him. We've got to be reminded about that, right? Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have written that. But at the end of the day, the Spirit is changing you into the image of Christ, leading you step by step, little by little, to holiness and godliness. And you're learning to obey God's will of love from the heart. Beginning, you're living your life step by step, more in step with Him. But if your life is characterized by the works of the flesh, then the answer is not just try harder not to do them. It's not work really hard at producing the fruit of the Spirit instead. The answer is first and foremost, repent and believe the gospel. Stop trying to get right with God by your own performance. Listen to what the Spirit tells you. Jesus is Lord. He died for you on the cross. He rose again. He will return to judge. Believe this message. He died even for those works of the flesh that you've been doing. So you say no to the flesh now. Repudiate the flesh and say yes to Jesus as your Lord. Turn to him to save you by grace alone. And then look forward to the transforming work of the Spirit in your life. And if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your greatness and kindness and mercy, you have given us your spirit. And thank you that because we have your spirit, we have Christ. And because we have Christ, we have you. We thank you that your spirit has given us new life, that when we're justified by faith, we're not under the law, that he points us to Jesus, enabling us to appreciate your love for him, your love for us in him, appreciate his death for us, to incline our hearts to love you and obey you from the inside. We thank you that your spirit is leading us to holiness and godliness and to becoming more like your son. Father, we, your people, have repudiated the flesh. We have crucified it with our passions and desires. And yet while we wait for it to die, as we wait for our Lord's return, we continue to struggle with it. And so we pray that you help us by your Spirit to follow your Spirit's lead and not the desires of the flesh. May we be people characterized by the Spirit's fruit, individually and as a community. May we not be conceited, provoking and envying one another, and when we love one another from the heart and so fulfill the intent of the law. 
We pray all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.